Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, welcome once more. As you know, our uh, sort of kickoff here on the show is Everyday Mystery Solved. I wish I could solve all of the mysteries of the coronavirus story for you. I don't think we can do that, but I think we can maybe answer some questions. 514-790-0800 is the number. 500-800 is the uh, text messaging. So you can get your message to us either way. <clears throat> I'm Joe Schwartz. When I don't sit here behind the mic, and indeed I am in the studio behind the mic, and I feel quite safe doing this. I get into my car at home, I drive down here, I get out in the garage, I come up, I don't see a single person, I don't meet anyone, so I'm abiding by the uh, regulations. Anyway, when I am not doing this on Sunday afternoons, which now is becoming just about my only excursion, I look forward to it every week. It lets me get out, uh, aside from just walking in the neighborhood. And uh, uh, when I don't do this, uh, I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to separate sense from nonsense and to make sure you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. We do this in many ways. We have a website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. And if you go to that website, you can sign up for a weekly newsletter. And also, you can see our recorded uh, conversations about the COVID virus. We initiated that last week. We did another one this past Thursday, uh, together with uh, my colleagues and my daughter, who's an emergency room physician. We discussed the coronavirus story. We answer questions. We will do this again next Thursday. And if you uh, want to keep up to date on just when that is happening, how to get in on this, the best way to do that is to go to either my Facebook page or to go to our office Facebook page, which is the McGill uh, OSS, Office for Science and Society Facebook page, and uh, you'll see how to connect. But uh, it's a very simple thing to do. Come 4 o'clock on Thursday, you just go to the McGill Office for Society, Science and Society uh, Facebook page, and you can connect through there. And we do a 40-minute discussion, uh, bring in some interesting uh, stories, some anecdotes, and uh, answer questions that are posed to us because it is an interactive kind of uh, uh, broadcast. It's amazing the kind of things that you can do these days with technology and uh, it's awful to think about what the situation would have been like if we did not have the internet, if we didn't have Zoom, if we didn't have Skype, if we didn't have FaceTime. All of this makes this uh, uh, livable, not pleasant, but at least uh, uh, livable. Okay, let's start out with some coronavirus uh, discussion, and uh, we're going to begin with tonic water. <coughs> No, it's not a preventative, and it's not a treatment for a COVID-19 infection. Why does this question arise in the first place? It seems that it is prompted by confusion about quinine and chloroquine, the drug that is now being hyped for the treatment of coronavirus infection. Both quinine and chloroquine are anti-malarial drugs. So maybe if chloroquine works, which has, of course, not been scientifically demonstrated, then quinine may work as well, so people think. First, while quinine and chloroquine have some similarity in molecular structure, 
they are significantly different. That difference may not matter when dealing with the malaria parasite, obviously, because both of them work for that. Dealing with a virus is a different story. And then, even if quinine would have some antiviral activity, the amount added to tonic water, which is about 80 milligrams per liter, is enough to impart a slightly bitter taste, but is far too little for any kind of therapeutic effect. While tonic water is produced today, um, as it is produced today, has no medicinal effect, there was once a version that did. And for this, we go back to colonial India in the 19th century, when British soldiers were required to take quinine to prevent malaria. They were told to stir the powder into water and then drink this tonic, as it was called. That term comes from the Greek for to stretch, since the tonic was meant to stretch health. But many soldiers found the taste of quinine too bitter and did not take the medicine. Problem was, how to persuade the soldiers to take the life-saving drug? Mask the bitter taste, but with what? Turns out that juniper berries did the job nicely, and these are the berries that give gin its distinctive flavor. Soldiers didn't need much convincing to mix their tonic with gin, and happily downed the gin and tonic. When soldiers returned to England, they brought back the idea of mixing gin with quinine, giving rise to the beverage of gin and tonic. But don't count on it to prevent malaria, because the tonic water, as I said, has just enough quinine to give it a slightly bitter flavor. Where did quinine come from in the first place? It is a naturally occurring compound found in the bark of the cinchona tree, and that is native to South America, particularly Peru. Jesuit missionaries learned about the fever-reducing properties of the tree bark from natives, and they introduced it to Europe, where it became known as Jesuit powder or the Pope's powder. It wasn't favored in England because England had turned to Protestantism, and uh, it was believed that Jesuit powder was just sort of means to try to reconvert the Protestants to Catholicism, and uh, they didn't use it very much in England. And in fact, Oliver Cromwell, who had laws passed against the use of Jesuit powder, himself died of malaria, kind of justified. In 1820, French researchers Pierre-Joseph Pelletier and Joseph Bien-Aimé Cavantou managed to isolate quinine from the bark of a tree and coined the term quinine from the Inca word for the cinchona tree bark. The Inca word was kinakina, which means bark of bark. Prior to 1820, the bark was first dried, ground to a fine powder, and then mixed into a liquid, uh, very often wine, which was then consumed. Large-scale use of quinine as a prevention from malaria began around 1850. There was never enough quinine to meet the needs raising the prospect of a synthetic version. Since molecular structures could not be determined at the time, the difficulty of this task was not realized. Quinine is a very, very complex molecule. The synthesis was finally achieved by the great synthetic organic chemist Robert Woodward at Harvard University, in 1944. But that was a multi-multi-step synthesis, renowned for its academic brilliance, but it was far too complicated for any sort of commercial use. So tree bark remained the only source. And 
so it mean it remains to this day. Any quinine is sourced from the bark of the cinchona tree. A further problem was that the malaria-causing parasite was developing resistance to the drug, and that stimulated the search for molecules that had some synthetic similarity in molecular structure to quinine, but which could be more readily synthesized. One of these, developed by the Bayer company in Germany in the 1930s, was chloroquine, and that uh, basically displaced quinine as the drug of choice for treatment of malaria. And that is the drug today that is being tried for COVID-19 infections. Chloroquine, unfortunately, has significant side effects. And in 1955, hydroxychloroquine was introduced by the Sterling Pharmaceutical Company because it had a better side effect profile. And this too is now being investigated for the COVID-19 infections. There are a number of controlled clinical trials on the way, and we will relatively soon know whether or not there's any kind of uh, efficacy. Hopefully, there will be something, but I don't think it's going to be the great, the game changer, as uh, President uh, Trump has suggested. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll take a break. See if there's any traffic out there. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Lots of uh, questions being texted in. Uh, someone's asking uh, if someone who has uh, uh, COVID-19 and is infected but is not aware, if they get tested the next day and are negative, is that 100% they will not get the virus? No, there's no 100% of not getting the, uh, the virus. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that question is uh, asking. Anyway, testing is, of course, extremely important because that will be the way that we can determine how this virus is, is spreading. Eventually, when uh, someone has a positive test, they've been infected, they will uh, undergo testing again and again. And when you get two negative tests, then it will be assumed that they, they are rid of the virus. And we'll see how that works out, how long it takes for people to get rid of the, uh, the virus. So testing is going to be... Uh, very important. Someone else is asking about the pneumonia vaccine that uh, people have gotten, whether or not that uh, is uh, capable of preventing COVID-19 infection. No, no. This is a viral infection and uh, you need a specific uh, vaccine. Hopefully, eventually we'll have one for this. The pneumonia vaccine is, is not effective for uh, this kind of uh, prevention. Uh, did this virus start in live meat markets in, in China? That is one of the dominant theories, although not everyone agrees that that is the case. And anyway, they are asking, how come that these markets are, are not being closed down permanently? I, I guess it is because uh, uh, in China, this is uh, an important uh, commodity, uh, whatever is sold in these markets. And uh, they have a long tradition of eating kind of uh, wild meats. But uh, I think if it were proven conclusively that this is where the virus emerged from, that would be a different story. But uh, no, it's not being proven um, totally. Why are doctors in Canada not using nitric oxide to treat uh, uh, COVID as they are in Italy? I, I, that I have not heard that uh, this is being used in Italy. Uh, nitric oxide, of course, is very interesting because it's a vasodilator. And uh, 
Indeed, it is the only gas that acts as the neurotransmitter, uh, transmitting information from one nerve cell to, to the other. Uh, nitric oxide is also the reason that Viagra works, because Viagra uh, triggers the formation of nitric oxide, which dilates uh, blood vessels. I've not heard of this being used for COVID, but uh, interesting to uh, take a look uh, into that, which uh, I will do, and I'll let you know if there's anything that comes out of it. Okay, let me go to the lines for uh, a moment, and we'll go to Gord. Hi, Gord. Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. I'm wondering, what's the probability of this bug mutating into something more dangerous? I read somewhere that there are two strains of it. There are. There are two strains, and eventually there may be other strains because viruses do mutate. It means that their genetic composition changes, and uh, when the genetic composition changes, they uh, it codes for different proteins, and it can have a different effect. So that possibility always exists with any virus. And as you know, the flu virus mutates all the time. That's why you have to develop new vaccines uh, every year. So it is a possibility, yes. But okay, right, right now we're dealing with uh, the two strains that, that are known to exist. And those are the ones that uh, they're trying to develop vaccines for. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to Bruno. Hi, Bruno. Yes, hello, Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Are vaccinations, uh, be- can, can vaccinations become obligatory? Well, that's interesting. Uh, that uh, opens up a real big can of worms, as you can imagine, because there are people who oppose vaccination on several different count- grounds. There are those who oppose it on religious grounds. There are those who believe that safety of vaccines cannot be proven and that the risks outweigh the benefits, and I, I think that that is a fallacious argument. Uh, there are some risks with any vaccine, but the benefits greatly outweigh any risk. Uh, oh, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to be made mandatory, but uh, I think if there's a, a vaccine that um, evolves uh, against this uh, virus, I don't think that there's going to be too much difficulty convincing people to take it. Because but, the ones who don't believe in it will also get uh, reinfected if they don't believe in vaccinations, if this, there's a COVID-19 vaccination, right? This is true, but uh, we live in a society where you can't... Uh, you can't make everything obligatory, you know. So it's uh, it's going to be interesting what happens because the uh, the anti-vaxxers now are getting a taste of what a world looks like without an effective vaccine. But you know uh, what? So Many of them are not changing their minds. It's really incredible. Anti-vaxxers are very hard-headed, and uh, nothing changes their uh, opinion about vaccines. But uh, I, I think that if a vaccine is developed, which is not not just around the corner, uh, I think it uh, will be accepted by most people. Okay. Uh, other questions that have been uh, texted in. <laughs> Here's one. Uh, you need to rinse raw chicken before cooking it. I'm not sure that that relates to the coronavirus, uh, but it is a good idea uh, to uh, not wash the chicken under your tap. A lot of people just put the chicken, you know, uh, and try to rinse it under your tap, and then the water splashes all over the place, and you get uh, bacteria, salmonella, if there are any, over the counter. And then if you put something else on the counter, you will contaminate it. 
So if you're going to cook the chicken anyway, any bacteria there will be killed by the heat. So it is not a good idea to start splattering the water uh, by washing the chicken uh, under the tap. Oh, I mean, that is just good general advice. That really has nothing to do with the uh, uh, current situation with, with the virus. Someone asks, uh, the virus dies at 55 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit. That would be Celsius. That would be Celsius. So heating the anything that may contain the virus up to that temperature uh, will ensure that the virus is, uh, is no longer uh, active. On the other hand, cold will not uh, do anything to the virus. The viruses are very stable in, uh, in cold temperatures. They can live in a freezer. They can certainly live in your refrigerator. In fact, the uh, cold temperatures harden the outer coating of the virus, and uh, it uh, basically makes the virus more resistant to any kind of uh, attack. So heat, yeah, very easily kills the virus, but don't, uh, don't think that if you're going to put out uh, your groceries into the cold, that that is going to take care of any virus on there. Time will take care of it <clears throat> because, you know, there's a certain amount of time that uh, the virus is viable depending on the surface that it is on. We've talked about this before. Generally on paper, it seems to be uh, about uh, a day on uh, plastic and uh, metal it seems to be two to three days. On copper, survival is a very short time, just uh, hours. But if you put something in your garage for a couple of days, it will not uh, have uh, any virus viable uh, on it. All right, we're going to take a break uh, and uh, check in uh, on the news. And after that, we'll be back. You can give us a call at 514-790-800 or text your questions at 514-800. And uh, uh, we forget that we're not only dealing with the coronavirus. I mean, there are other things that are going on in life as well. Today, of course, is Easter Sunday. It's also Passover. So maybe we should uh, uh, take a bit of a break from the coronavirus and uh, talk about some biblical stories, which we will do when we come back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Well, today is uh, Easter Sunday. It's also Passover. And uh, on Easter Sunday, there, there are traditional movies that uh, can be watched or shows that can be seen. And one of those is Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, interestingly enough, Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, who is... Uh, to me, a phenomenal composer. I mean, you take a look at the subjects that he has uh, dealt with, you know, everything from from uh, uh, Jesus to Evita to the Phantom of the Opera, uh, and spectacular shows. He has made available some of these shows to be watched uh, for the next seven weeks uh, on weekends. Uh, the time is limited. So, for example, he is now featuring Jesus Christ Superstar only this weekend, so you can only watch it till midnight tonight. But it's easy to find. Uh, you just uh, Google the shows must go on. The shows must go on, and you'll get to the site where you can watch this unbelievably spectacular production, new production of Jesus Christ Superstar, done in an arena in front of 15,000 people, a giant stage, and it's a modern version, dressed in modern clothes, it is really, really worth 
saying. Take my advice. Uh, take the time today and watch this version of Jesus Christ uh, Superstar by Andrew Lloyd Webber. All right, it's also Passover. And Passover, of course, takes us to some of the Moses stories. And Moses looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. And uh, most of us have heard that passage from the Exodus. It's one of the most famous ones in the entire Bible. After all, it was from the burning bush on Mount Horeb that God spoke to Moses, telling him that he had been chosen to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Searching for possible scientific explanations for biblical phenomena is an interesting pastime. Of course, that is all it is, because for those who have faith that biblical accounts are based on true miracles, no scientific explanation is necessary. And for those who are skeptical, that the Bible is factual, no scientific rationalization is needed for events they believe never occurred. For everyone's point of view, biblical stories can serve as a springboard for leaping into some captivating science. Suggestions have been made that the Dictamus albus plant found throughout northern Africa is a candidate for the burning bush. In the summer, this plant, also known as the gas plant, exudes a variety of volatile oils that can catch fire readily and may give the impression that the bush is burning. So was Moses witnessing the combustion of a mix of terpenes, flavonoids, coumarins, and phenylpropanoids? Interesting hypothesis about the burning bush, but one that can be readily doused. The plant's volatile oils do not catch fire spontaneously. They need a source of ignition. Moses is unlikely to have been walking around with flintstones looking for bushes to ignite. And when the vapors coming off the Dictamnus albus plant do ignite, the flash lasts just a few seconds. Had the flash managed to set leaves on fire, the bush would certainly have been consumed. So if uh, Moses really did see a burning bush that was not consumed, well, maybe he was seeing things. At least, that is the opinion of Benny Shannon, professor of cognitive psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Shannon suggests that Moses may have been having a hallucinatory experience, and he bases that theory on his own fling with plants that can alter consciousness. It seems Shannon was once invited to a religious ceremony performed by natives of the Amazon, where he had the opportunity to taste a potion made from the ayahuasca plant. Off he went on a hallucinogenic trip, which he described as having spiritual connotations. It isn't clear exactly what he meant by that, but clearly he liked the experience because he claims to have repeated it hundreds of times, even writing a book on the subject. If it happened to him, it could have happened to Moses, he suggests, perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The problem is that the ayusca is a tropical vine found in the jungles of the Amazon, not in the sands of the desert. However, there's a plant that grows in the Sinai and in the Negev with similar properties, and that is Paganum harmala, also known as wild rue. Like ayahuasca, the plant seed capsules contain a number of alkaloids such as harmine, vasacine, and harmaline that can affect the mind. These compounds interfere with the activity of an enzyme known as monoamine oxidase, which is involved in the breakdown of dopamine, serotonin, phenylethamine, tyramine, melatonin, all compounds that play important roles in the nervous system. These monoamines, as they are called, 
increase in concentration in the presence of monoamine oxidase inhibitors, such as the ones found in the seed pods of the wild rue. The result can be a consciousness-altering experience. In fact, monoamine oxidase inhibitors are used as medications to treat depression by boosting levels of dopamine and serotonin, which are involved in mood regulation. Whether the Israelites used psychoactive plants in religious ceremonies is debatable. But apparently, modern-day Bedouins who wander through the same desert where the biblical accounts place Moses do partake of the wild rue. Although the rue does contain psychoactive substances, its effects are very mild compared with ayahuasca. That's because in the Amazon, the natives have learned to combine ayahuasca extracts with those of another plant known as the chacruna. This is a rich source of dimethyltryptamine, a potential hallucinogen. DMT is a monoamine normally broken down by monoamine oxidase, but when chacruna is combined with the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in ayahuasca, a powerful hallucinogenic effect is produced. Moses, however, would have had no access to chacruna. So, interesting kind of story, uh, and at least, you know, it allows us to talk a little bit about uh, what is going on in the brain and monoamine oxidase and its inhibitors. <clears throat> but uh, uh, these kind of scientific investigations uh, of the Bible are interesting and fanciful, but they really don't lead uh, anywhere, except perhaps to a textbook, so that you can look up something about the activity of these monoamine oxidase uh, inhibitors. <clears throat> All right, well, back to the coronavirus uh, stories. Um, if a vaccine for COVID-19 is created, will a new one need to be created every year like the flu vaccine? Well, uh, nobody knows this because a vaccine has not yet been uh, created. And of course, it all depends on whether or not uh, this virus mutates into a number of different ones. Uh, from what I've heard from viro virologists, that is not likely to happen, so that uh, once a, a vaccine is found for this, it probably will be, uh, will be effective. But, uh, you know, there's no guarantee that a vaccine will be found. There's a very good chance because, of course, it is known, uh, the technology of, of, of developing vaccines is, is known, uh, but... Uh, there are many viral conditions for which vaccines have not been found. And uh, HIV, of course, is a classic example. So uh, just because a condition is caused by a virus does not necessarily mean that, that the vaccine can be found. Although I think in this case, there's a good chance that, uh, that it will be found. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, Sydney. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Dr. Doe. I wonder if you can help me, please. Is this to do with the hand sanitizer? Is there a specific hand sanitizer for viruses only? Uh, no, no. So the regular hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer do, do their job? Yes, these hand sanitizers work against bacteria, they work against fungi, they work against viruses. The question is, do they have enough of the active ingredient? The most effective is alcohol, whether it's ethyl alcohol or isopropyl alcohol, but you want to have over 60%. So 70 to 90% is what uh, you want to look for on the label. That will be effective against uh, viruses. Now, there also are hand sanitizers out there that are labeled alcohol-free. Those contain benzalkonium chloride. That also works. 
probably not quite as well as alcohol, but I think good enough for the virus that we're dealing with here because this this virus is actually surprisingly unstable when it comes to disinfectants. So as long as you have at least 0.03% benzalkonium chloride in a, a sanitizer, it will do the job. Okay, thanks for that question. We have to take another break. We'll check traffic and we'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Someone is asking, as the weather is getting nicer, is it okay to drive with the driver's side window open or should one use the air conditioner? I think it is fine to drive with the window open. The chance of, of a significant amount of virus drifting in there from someone who was walking by and coughed, sneezed, I think that risk is very, very small. Unfortunately, you know, with this virus, you can never say zero risk with, with any kind of situation. But I think there the risk is so small that, that um, I wouldn't give it uh, a second thought. Okay, let's go to Stanley. Stanley. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I understand that there was a tiger, I think it was a tiger, that got the virus. I don't know what was the result after that. Did they find any antibodies that the tiger created? And also, is there any research being done on other wild animals to find whether they can uh, actually create antibodies? Very good question. Very good question. I, I know this tiger story, uh, but uh, I don't know if enough uh, investigation has been done to see whether or not it was really this virus. The, virus, the tiger did come down with some kind of, uh, of disease. And whether or not an animal will develop antibodies to a virus that can then be extracted and used in humans is a very interesting uh, possibility. And uh, I don't know if anyone is looking uh, into that. I'll, I'll have to take a look, uh, uh, search the scientific literature to see about that. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of activity in extracting antibodies from uh, people who have uh, been struck down with the virus and then recovered, and seeing whether or not those uh, antibodies can be used in, in others. Certainly a lot of activity there. But I don't know about uh, animals. It's a very interesting possibility that I have to look into. I'll, I'll let you know next week what I find out about that. Okay? It's Thank very, you very much. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, uh, yeah, line of research that uh, I bet it probably is being, uh, being explored. All right, someone else is, is asking here about canned food. Uh, many of us are cleaning kitchen cupboards, finding old undented cans of food. Is it safe to eat salmon best before day 2018? Campbell's mushroom soup best before 2016? My darling, Dubby, Hubby, and brother want to have a contest who eats the oldest can. Their life insurances have paid up, but surprisingly, I prefer them alive. What are the signs of food poisoning? Well, signs of food poisoning can vary, uh, but it tends to be gastro-related, so vomiting, uh, diarrhea, malaise, headache, those are signs of uh, food poisoning. Food poisoning, of course, can be very serious. Canned foods are unlikely to cause food poisoning. Cans that were uh, canned over 100 years ago have been safely eaten. The idea, of course, in, in canning is that you put the food into the can, you seal the can, and then you heat it to kill every microbe in there. And because there is no contact with the outside world, there's no way that microbes can uh, can enter. Uh, in a dented can, 
it's possible to have microscopic holes where the dent forms. And that's why normally it is suggested that uh, you, know, you should not eat food from dented cans. Now, in terms of um, best before date, the best before date is based on flavor because food does age inside of can. and It doesn't have to be microbial contamination. Fats can go uh, rancid inside a can, although it will take a long time because there's not much oxygen in there. So the best before date really uh, refers to when the food will taste the same as it tasted when, the, when it was canned. It doesn't refer to health. So I, I would have no concern about eating canned food from 2018 or even 2016 as long as the can was uh, not dented. The biggest concern with canned food is that many of them tend to be very salty. So you want to be aware of that when you're eating a lot of uh, canned food. Okay, uh, let's go to Grant. Hi, Grant. Hi. Uh, I was uh, seeing a graph that showed that a face mask, non-metallic, would survive a microwave on high for three minutes, and uh, the viruses <laughs> would not survive. Well, this is That's true, right? but there is a but there. Yeah. Uh, the microwave itself does not kill the virus. Uh, microwaves are non-ionizing radiation. They cannot break chemical bonds, so the microwave itself does not kill the virus. It's However, water. heat does. Yeah. So as long as you have some water in there, then the, the steam, of course, which is at 100 degrees, will kill the virus. Okay, the, the, well, but but yeah. the, the question is what it does to the permeability of the mask. Well, and, the graph footnote said that the effectiveness of the mask wasn't bothered. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, uh, a, there's a lot of work now being done, you know, on, on this, on uh, just how you can sterilize masks. They didn't talk about yeah. any water. They just said microwaving, you know, just as is, as long as there's no metal, it will, uh, you know, kill all the virus. Well, I, I don't see how that can be unless you have something uh, that can be heated up by the microwaves. Okay, well, they didn't mention, so I'll take it uh, what you got. Okay. But in any, in any case, uh, until we have some really firm experiments on how you can re-sterilize a mask, I, I think it's not something that should be done, uh, done at home. And anyway, uh, you know, this is really of critical importance only in a hospital setting. Uh, the mask that you're wearing to, you know, to go to the grocery store, uh, that's a different story. Those don't have to be re-sterilized. It's a question, of course, of when you should wear masks in the first place. I think going to the grocery store is probably a good idea. Uh, going out for a walk, I don't think that you need a mask. All right, let's go to uh, Steve. Steve. Hi. Um, I'm just wondering, can COVID-19 spread or crawl on surfaces, like uh, spreading from the doorknob to the door kind of thing? Well, no, the virus doesn't crawl. The virus doesn't move. It stays it where stays. it is. However, if there's any moisture around, of course, moisture kind of spreads. So, you know, if, if you, uh, let's say there's a, a virus uh, on a doorknob, and then you touch it with a moist hand and you touch the door, yeah, then right. then that's one way to spread it. But just by itself, no, the virus does not uh, is not an athlete. It does not jump from one place to the other. Okay? Okay, thank uh, you. Okay, thanks. All right. 
Next, we will go to Annie. Annie. Hi. Hi, Hi doctor. What's Thank up? You very much. Thank you very much for accepting my call, and you're doing a wonderful job. Thank you. Um, I live in a residence. Uh, we're not uh, permitted to go out, and um, I have a cleaning lady that uh, does the cleaning like twice a month. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, is it safe to let a cleaning lady in uh, to do her work? Well, I mean, the cleaning lady is no different from any other person. And uh, uh, you keep your distance. You observe, you know, the the two-meter distance. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, uh, unless this cleaning lady has, you know, traveled somewhere (laughs) exotic in the last little while, they're no different from anyone else here. Okay. Uh, so I, I think that the the chance of of uh, you know a cleaning lady uh, bringing something into into the residence as, as long as you know you know her history and okay. where she's been, uh, I think it's very small risk. But you know you should observe the distancing as you would with uh, anyone else. Oh, okay. Well, okay. thank you very much okay. for guiding me. Thank you. Have okay. a nice day. You're welcome. You know, as I said before. There are no guarantees about anything because you you don't know who may be a carrier, and uh, many carriers are asymptomatic. So sometimes you you just say, well, you know, it's a small risk, and you have to take the risk. I mean, cleanliness is important when you're living in a residence and you rely on a cleaning lady. Well, you know, it's uh, you have to weigh the risks against uh, the benefits. Anyway, we are running out of time here, uh, but let me remind you once more. Uh, to check both my Facebook page, and that's easy to find. You just go Joe Schwartz and you'll find it. You can, of course, send me emails with your questions. And my email is joe, J-O-E dot S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z at mcgill.ca. And um, I answer every uh, email, usually pretty quickly. And um, also, next Thursday afternoon, 4 o'clock, Check in on our Facebook page, which is the McGill Office for Science and Society Facebook page. I will also put the uh, critical information on my Facebook page. And you can join us for our uh, online show about the coronavirus and whatever else scientific uh, comes up up to that time. And uh, so if I don't see you online Thursday afternoon, I'll see you back here again next Sunday. And until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.